It is Locked on NBA, the local experts on the biggest stories. We'll start with Ben DeBose, Locked on Rockets, on how they're digesting the Russell Westbrook to Rockets trade. Then we'll stop by two of the biggest mysteries of the offseason and check in with the Warriors and the Knicks. It's the local experts on the biggest stories. It's Locked on NBA. You are Locked on the NBA, part of the Locked on Podcast Network. Is locked on NBA. They lock in for Josh Lloyd again. Our Monday edition is always the local experts on the biggest stories. And there is one story that is still rocking the NBA the trade between the Houston Rockets and the Oklahoma City Thunder that sent James Harden's buddy Russell Westbrook to the Rockets and Chris Paul to the Thunder. How do you possibly understand all of this in a short little bit? Well, you probably should listen to Locked on Rockets and Locked on Thunder. But what we do with the local experts on the biggest stories is we get a quick synopsis from them here. We'll check in on some other stories before the day is done. But Ben DeBose of Locked on Rockets joins us now. And Ben, with everyone having a little time to digest this, what's the feeling in Houston? Cautious optimism. I think everyone sees the higher upside before the deal was really digested. That's the word I'll go with. There's a lot of trepidation because everyone knows Russell's inefficiencies and you have two guys that are ball dominant in the case of Westbrook and Harden. They have played together in the past. That's been seven to 10 years. So clearly there's some negatives and there's just some shock value when it was initially announced. With that said, the more time that passes, and of course it helps that there's no games to kind of contradict, but the more I think people look at the upside and the bottom line is that a 30-year-old Russell Westbrook, well, they will be 31 by the season, but he's a better player or should be than a 34-year-old Chris Paul. Now, is he as smooth of a fit alongside James Harden and in this Mike D'Antoni offense? We don't know. But in terms of a one-for-one comparison, there's more upside with Westbrook. And after two or three days, you know, the fit, we'll see what happens when September and October get here. But that's what people in Houston are kind of starting to talk themselves into, I feel like. You put out a great episode right when the deal went down on Lockdown Rockets, giving insight that only the local expert could give. And you had a, your point was this was not a, uh, the owner's deal. This was not Daryl Morey, the GM's deal. This was a James Harden deal. Explain what you meant by that. Yeah, this is a move that I feel pretty confident as soon as Paul George was plucked by the Clippers and really by Kawhi Leonard, I would bet that almost immediately, and this is what Brian Windhorst has reported as well, that the communication started very frequently between Russell Westbrook and James Harden. Those two are as close as any that I've seen in the NBA. To put it in perspective, before Westbrook had his knee scope in September and late August, Last year, Westbrook on a Sunday morning caught a Southwest flight commercial from Oklahoma City to Houston just to fly in and play basketball in Harden's charity game, which it's pretty rare for the charity games to have guys, especially that are non-local, of that stature. And yet, you know, that reflects the bond between those two guys. So I always knew, going back to Oklahoma City and then watching every time they play the Rockets, that those two are really, really close. And the thing with Harden, over his seven years in Houston, what kind of stands out about him, you know, aside from the fact that he's been a really good player, he hasn't really created a lot of drama. He's never even had a free agency courtship process. And, of course, they've been close to a title. But what's kind of weird, he's never had a free agency courtship process, yet we're in an NBA where you're seeing these duos, LeBron and AD, Kawhi and Paul George, all just teaming up. 
And even though he's had two all-star caliber guys, Dwight Howard and Chris Paul, those were both more marriages of convenience. That was Daryl Morey getting the best player available at the time when they at least had some flexibility, or in the case of the Clippers and the CP3 trade, it was trade assets. This was an opportunity with the NBA trending towards you know, these new star duos. Between that bond and the fact that Harden had been in Houston for seven years without really bringing in his guy, this was basically his version of free agency, in my opinion, David. This was his chance to go out and get not just a star, but a star that he felt from a talent perspective, mentally, whatever it may be, that he was in alignment with. This was an opportunity, and as soon as the Paul George deal went official, I knew that this was at least a possibility. Do you think if Chris Paul and James Harden got along, they still would have done this deal? Honestly, yes. Um, If the playoff results are the same, that's the caveat. Now, you know, if they beat the Warriors, if they go further in the playoffs, then no. But I think this deal, it wasn't so much personal in terms of Harden and Chris and any of those stories. I'm not going to say it's a non-factor, but I just think that as long as the results are the same in terms of the last couple of years have been close but not over the hump, that Harden wouldn't turn down Westbrook and the possibility. I think the only thing that could have kept this from happening would have been if the Rockets finished the job against the Warriors and they weren't able to get that done. Do you think it'll work? That's the million-dollar question. I'm talking myself into it. I'm not going to say 100% because you'd be foolish to. The, The risks are clearly there. But the thing that I keep going back to, besides the fact that they want it to work, which is obvious, but that is you know, an important step one. I know it's been a lot earlier in their careers, but the fact that they have played together before in Oklahoma City gives me some hope that there's something that they can draw upon. It won't be like totally a fish out of water. And if they can figure it out, the talent is still there. You know, I've looked a little bit more. Westbrook's defensive numbers the last couple of years were better than I suspected. His shooting numbers last year when he was bad, actually his worst shooting numbers were the first couple of months of the year when he was coming off that scope. He didn't have training camp. He didn't have a preseason. After the All-Star break, he was 34% from three, and he's going to get more opportunities, more wide-open looks here. He should have more spacing. Nothing's going to make him a great shooter. I'm not saying that, but there's enough to where you can see at least his weaknesses being passable. And then the strengths. You know, I don't know how he's going to age. I've always been a skeptic of Russell Westbrook's aging curve in the NBA based on how much he's dependent on his athleticism, what's going to happen when he's 33, 34. We've seen what's happened to Chris Paul the last couple of years. But as far as Westbrook at 31 and 32 the next couple of years, assuming he's healthy, I think these two guys have enough of a relationship that they'll at least be good. Will they be championship good? I don't know. And some of that's going to depend on exactly how the Lakers, Clippers, and the Jazz come together. But I don't think it's going to be a disaster. I think there's enough history there that these two can at least be a very, very good team. What's interesting here is there's a lot of numbers that make you wonder whether Westbrook might have the Carmelo effect, right? He just has reached a point of his career where he's just not offensively efficient anymore. He uses a lot of possessions, and he just hurts you. And, you know, the fact is that Paul George, we're putting Paul George with Kawhi Leonard and talking about the Clippers winning 60. 
put Paul George with Russell Westbrook, they never won more than 50. And so I think that's really what this, this, this I think is this incredible moment in Russell Westbrook's career of how he's going to be remembered other than the triple double is how he and James Harden perform. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I thought early on, you know, my skepticism was, is this Carmelo part two? And of course, Carmelo had a few extra years and I don't think his game in terms of the explosion was anywhere near, you know, not saying that Westbrook now is at his peak, but the gap between peak Westbrook and now is nowhere near as severe as what I saw from Carmelo a year ago relative to when he was in his prime form. But I agree with you that in terms of the efficiency, and I think what gives me hope besides the fact that, you know, they're friends and they want to make this work is the fact that Westbrook, according to Michael Lee of the athletic, he also wanted to be in Houston because of Mike D'Antoni because of the system. And perhaps this is the opportunity. You know, it's tough when you've been somewhere for a decade, the way Russell has in Oklahoma City, to reboot on the fly, to be able, midway through your career, to sort of turn a new leaf and hit the reset button. On the other hand, going to a situation in Houston where there's an established power structure, it's clearly James Harden's team. Mike D'Antoni is an established coach. All those dynamics. If there's ever going to be a moment in which... Russell Westbrook gets it, so to speak, this would be it. And the fact that I'm not going to say that Daryl Morey made this decision. As I said earlier, I think Harden was the one who talked everyone into it. I think clearly more than Morey, more than Tolman Bertita, this was Harden. But I don't think even with Harden's endorsement that Morey signs off without having some pretty strong conversations with Russell Westbrook, because unlike the Carmelo thing last year, that was basically just a minimum flyer, and they cut bait on the guy after 10 games. This is one in which when you look at that contract, and you factor in not just that they took the contract, but they gave up you know, Chris Paul, they gave up two first-round picks in 2024 and 2026, when who knows, the Rockets could easily be bad. Gerald Morey would not have done this without having you know, some pretty in-depth conversations, I feel like, with Westbrook, Harden, Russ's representation, those factions, and feeling pretty good that he was willing to do what it takes to adapt. Now, I understand words are one thing, actions are another, but I don't think this is a flyer the way it was with Carmelo a year ago. This is something that clearly the Rockets believe can work, and I'm guessing that at least in terms of what they've heard to this point, they're optimistic that Westbrook's willing to adapt. Well, the final note I would leave us on, I think will be interesting. Final 15 seconds of the shot clock, Westbrook was just awful. Um, and has been for the last two years. He shoots somewhere around 26% from three. He shoots below 40% from the field. What that D'Antoni system is is really a big question mark at this point. In Phoenix, it was one thing. With Harden, it's been another. One of these guys is an early shot clock, pl- shot clock player. Another one of these guys is a late shot clock player. It will be interesting to see how they meld those two things. Ben, will be exciting to continue to listen to Lockdown Rockets. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. One of the other mysteries in the NBA is what has happened in New York and what's going on with the Knicks. Gavin Shaw hosts Locked on Knicks along with Alex Wolf. He joins us now. And, and Gavin, what, what do you think the Knicks are trying to do here? 
Um, as far as the Marcus Morris signing goes, I, it, it's interesting because they sign these myriad of wings and you see all the jokes on Twitter, oh, another power forward for the Knicks. But you can make an argument, at least from day one, he might be the Knicks' best player next season. Um, I, I would say Mitchell Robinson holds that spot. But certainly in terms of um, two-way impact, Marcus Morris is in that category. He's almost instantaneously their most efficient wing scorer, 45% from the field last season, 38% from three, 14 points, six rebounds a night. And he provides provides two skills that essentially no one else on their roster has, at least um, in conjunction in terms of his three-point shooting and his ability to defend one-on-one. And now some Boston Celtics pundits and fans might tell you that ability is a little bit overrated, but he's at the very least solid on that end. And the Knicks really don't have another even average wing defender on their roster or someone who's going to play a prominent role in the rotation. So he's somewhat unique on this Knicks team. So even with all the other guys they signed, he certainly has a role on this Knicks team. Do you... The, the Knicks aren't going to be good, at least unless you think they are. Do you think the impact of the lottery last year where it didn't seem as advantageous to tank has impacted how they've built their team this year? Um, certainly. I mean, I, I think if they get Zion Williamson, they might have been more interested in going after a second-tier free agent and, and whether or not they would have gotten that guy, a, a Kemba Walker type, a Tobias Harris type. Maybe they're all of a sudden more attractive to Kevin Durant, though that seemed like a done deal. Regardless, um, I, I don't know. It could have shifted. It, just, it, it is just quintessential Knicks, though, that the one year they succeed in tanking successfully and they had all these near misses over the last couple of years. I mean, Carl Anthony Towns, three years back, obviously, was just one pick away from taking Steph Curry, if they had employed this strategy a year earlier and didn't have Kristaps Porzingis on the roster whole season, who knows, maybe they end up with Luka Doncic or Trey Young, who they were allegedly targeting. Instead, they do it in the year where a draft isn't particularly deep. The lottery odds don't favor them. And they end up with R.J. Barrett, who certainly has some promise. But, I mean, I, I think you look at how he's played in summer league and you look back at some of the rookies from last year, I think if you did a redraft, he certainly doesn't go in the top five, maybe not the top seven or eight. So it it is sort of quintessential Knicks, but it is interesting that they've sort of avoided the dangling carrot that's they've taken time and time again in the James Dolan era in overpaying a star who's not necessarily deserving of it. Um, They're trying to build around these young guys, and they are taking a middle ground instead of going full out and tanking and trying to be somewhat competent next year. And whether or not that's realistic, you can certainly debate it. I mean, I don't think they're a playoff team, but I I think this is a team that after the Marcus Morris signing could maybe approach 30 wins, and for the Knicks, they'll consider that success and an avenue to further develop their young talent. How is 30 wins a success, or is the Nick world just that demented that they'll call that a success? I think it's only a success if you want to make an argument the most conducive environment to the growth of their young players is one that is competitive and where they have to earn their minutes. Last year, Kevin Knox was handed a role from day one, and he was statistically one of the worst players in the NBA throughout next season. Now you have a situation where you have an abundance of talent on the wing that he's going to have to fight through. R.J. Barrett's going to have to fight through. Alonzo Trier's going to have to fight through. And if you're operating, um, again, in a world where you think that is going to be what pushes them to be the best possible player and where the veteran guidance, quote-unquote, of guys like Bobby Portis and Julius Randle and Marcus Morris, which almost sounds like a joke coming out of my mouth, but I think, I think it is genuinely what the Knicks believe um, is going to be what's best for these guys, then that's the goal. I mean, on a personal level, I, I don't necessarily agree with it. If I'm the Knicks, I, I'm trying to be as bad as possible next year, get another top five pick, add as strong of the talent as possible, but I think getting burned in the lottery this year maybe directed their thinking a little bit differently. Why go through just another horrible season if you're going to 
have what happened to Phoenix and fall out of the top five. I think their goal is to win as many games as possible and hope for a slightly better lottery luck and maybe what happened to the Pelicans this year. What do you think their starting five is? It's going to be <laughs> – that's a, that's a loaded question. Um, Dennis Smith Jr. has put a lot of work into his jump shot. I would – I'd, I'd still, I'd still guess Alfred Payton's going to be the starting point guard at the beginning of the year. I think you're going to have R.J. Barrett starting at shooting guard, um, Marcus Morris at small forward, Julius Randle at power forward, and Mitchell Robinson. I think is pretty solidly locked in at center. Um, there's an argument for Kevin Knox. He had a really good summer league. I, I'd just be surprised if you could justify starting him over Morris at this point. See, this is where this is just so weird. You're trying to develop your young talent and that's their and yet two of the three guys that really matter aren't even starting Dennis Smith and Kevin Knox so it's I guess it's as the Knicks world turns and making sense of it is what allows you to do a daily podcast but it's awfully hard from an outside perspective to get it uh, no, I'm I'm constant. I'm walking around cross-eyed all day, David. I'm I'm in a constant state of disorientation. I'm, I'm trying trying to figure out the thinking, but um, at least I don't. It's it, it's so it's it's interesting the state of the fan base because people are really buying into a degree, and I think just the sheer restraint of not handing an Amari Stoudemire equivalent $100 million is, is considered a win after the Knicks. Missed out on Kevin Durant, which I mean, despite the James Dolan report, I mean you can argue to some degree was out of their control. Gavin, keep up the great work on Locked on Knicks and try to make sense of something. I usually tell you it's the local experts on the biggest stories who completely understand, but some things might not be explainable. We, we, do, we do our best, David. Thank you. Gavin Shaw, Locked on Knicks here on the biggest stories, local experts, Locked on NBA. Well, we've checked in on the biggest story of the week, unquestionably, on Locked on NBA today with the local experts and the biggest stories, but the Warriors are still sitting around. Subtle things going on. Udala goes to Memphis. Livingston gets released. They sign Alec Burks. Where do the Warriors stand? Let's check in. Charles Hamilton, host Locked on Warriors, local expert on the biggest stories. And Charles, what is going on in Golden State? Where do the Warriors sit right now? Well, they just uh, finished up, you know, completing the roster. They're up to 14 roster spots now. Uh, they left the 15th roster spot open last year. I'm assuming they'll do the same thing this year. Well, they actually have to uh, with how close they are to the hard cap at the moment. So uh, they, I was curious to see if they would sign their second-round pick, Alan Smilagich, to a two-way contract. They ended up signing him full-on to the uh, – official 15-man roster, so they're, they're set to go. They got uh, Alec Burks this week as well after he uh, backed out from his OKC deal after the Paul George trade, so that will help. I mean, you've, you've seen plenty of uh, Burks up in Utah. He's, he's a, a role player, solid role player on a team that needs him, and uh, they're going with a very serious youth movement in Golden State, something that they talked about last year, uh, which was more lip service than anything last year. This year they're really doing it where – Steph Curry is the oldest player on the team, and he's 31. And I think it's something like 11 out of their 14 or 10 out of their 14 are, you know, 26 and younger. So they're they're going young. And uh, I think it's the right move personally because, you know, dynasties end. And uh, they, they had to try and reload. And I think the D'Angelo Russell move was, was solid as well to just try and recoup an asset. And we'll see if that works. If it does, great. If not, they have a – a solid asset to hopefully try and reload uh, the roster with. So what is the starting five on this team? That is a good question. <laughs> uh, I think once Clay comes back, it will obviously be uh, Steph, D'Angelo Russell, Clay, uh, Draymond, and Willie Cauley-Stein. But at the moment, it's Steph, D'Angelo Russell, and then Alec Burks maybe, maybe Alfonso McKinney. 
Um, that that three spot is going to be uh, Glenn Robinson the third. He could you know slide in there as well. Uh, that three spot is the real question mark, but it'll also be Draymond and Willie Cauley Stein at the four or five, and then continue to bring Kevon Looney off the bench, which re-signing him was was huge, especially with the hard cap. They you know did not have a lot of wiggle room to bring him back, and they got him at a really good price, in my opinion, they at made, uh, five million a year. They made a bunch of these little tiny deals that almost with all the big Richter scale type moves that took place. California reference, um, <laughs> you know. So I think they traded for Mari Spellman. They mm-hmm. signed Willie Cauley Stein. They made the is they made the Alec Burks deal. Is there any common thread to what you think they're trying to do with all these deals? The youth. It's it's all about the youth movement right now. Um, obviously, the main ones are their their draft picks. When it's uh, Jacob Evans, Jordan Poole, uh, Eric Paschal, Smiley Geach. We'll see what happens with him. I think he'll spend a good amount of time in the G League. Omari Spellman, who they traded for, um, which was Part salary dump, part get a young piece back. Damian Jones was making about $400,000 more than him. So it was just a way to get a little lower uh, against the, the hard cap. But it's all about the youth, uh, especially this year. And, do you, th- um, and do, you, do you think any of these young players have a chance? Like, do you think that they are, any of them are anything more than just a rotation player? Or which of them do you even think are rotation players? I really like the Willie Cauley-Stein move, personally. I mean, I've seen a lot of them in Sacramento, and he'll bring... Uh, the vertical spacing that they just haven't had or didn't have last year, at least. I mean, they had it with JaVale McGee and uh, I would imagine Willie Cauley signs an upgrade over JaVale McGee might not be a huge upgrade, but also for the price they got him at. I like that. As far as the future is concerned, uh, Jacob Evans is a hell of a defender. His offense is coming along better as far as it being a, a star or anything doubtful, but with uh, Andre Guadala and Sean Livingston gone, Clay Thompson hurt, you know, you can never have enough, uh, perimeter defenders so him and then Jordan Poole most likely will be a six man but he's also really smooth and uh, after watching him in summer league I'm a lot higher on him than I was uh, when they drafted him so he's got a chance but most likely he'll end up being just a rotation player when you try to figure out how good this team's going to be obviously you know the question is do they get clay back and suddenly are this like vaunt eight seed or seventh seed in the playoffs and nobody wants to play him I think it still comes back to this, and that's how great is Steph. And I, I feel as though mm-hmm. that's still undersold. Like Steph's still, in my mind, the best player in the Western Conference. I, you're speaking my language, man. I, he's one of the. I don't know if underrated is the right term or disrespected is the right term, but for some reason he doesn't get a lot of the credit that I think he deserves. Uh, I'm with you. I think best player in the Western Conference, at least not very much in the conversation. Uh, and it's going to be all on him, basically. If they can go, and 500 doesn't sound like a big deal, but with how stacked the Western Conference is now between Lakers, Clippers, the moves Utah have made, Denver's coming back incredibly strong. Uh, you can never count out San Antonio. Can they go 500 or above during the time that Clay is out? And then once they get Clay back, maybe start hitting their stride again. But I, I'm with you. It's all about Steph and uh, throw Draymond in there also, but you know if Steph isn't MVP level, then I, I would imagine they're you know on the outside looking in uh, as far as the playoffs are concerned. So I know this is a prideful group, but this is the question that I would ask: When it's February third, they're two games above five hundred at twenty four and twenty two, and they're playing I don't know whom. 
Are they so prideful that they have that in them after five straight NBA finals? That is pretty much the question of the year. And I mean, talk about February 3rd. I, I don't know about, you know, November 1st. Is this a, a season where, and I expect it not to be because you, you talked about how prideful they are and how competitive guys like Steph and Draymond are. But if all of a sudden we see them kind of, I don't know if check out is the right term, but maybe take it easy for, you know, a good part of the year, I wouldn't blame them after this five-year run that they've had. If I had to bet on it, I would say no. They're going to come out guns blazing and, and, you know, show that competitive fire. And I wouldn't be surprised if Steph is once again trying to prove his greatness, which, again, sounds crazy that he has to try and prove it. But I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case and he does it. But also if they decide that it's just too much and they're just too worn down after this five-year run of, I think they've played 100 extra games as far as, you know, playoff games are concerned. So that's that's the main question, too. I mean, Steph's greatness, and then are they just willing to really go all out to, I don't know, be the sixth or seventh seed this year? Charles Hamilton, Locked on Warriors. Thanks for the time. Great look at where the Warriors stand. Local experts on the biggest stories. Keep having fun with the show. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me.